Good morning. Thought I'd show you one slide from uh, our staff party. <laughs> Highlands Brain Trust at its best. Where's the picture of you dressed up as Santa Claus? Uh, we don't have that picture. Oh, that no, does we, not exist. We don't, but maybe a little Photoshop help for next week. <laughs> <laughs> that was not in the script. <laughs> Got to keep you on your toes. So next week, if you don't know anything about Micah, you might want to come. Uh, Micah from around 700 BC will be here. I think uh, Pastor Adam is going to be interviewing Micah. And it's an unusual Sunday in that it's Christmas Eve, so we have a bunch of afternoon services, uh, 11, 1, 3, and then 5 at each of our other campuses. So there is only one morning service here, early morning, and then one in Merrill. So if you want to learn about Micah, you either uh, come to that one or go online, because we don't have all of our services. We can't, we just can't do it, actually. We can't switch the stage around from morning to what we're doing later in the day if we were to run all of our services. So if you have your Bibles today, you want to be in Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25, and also uh, Luke uh, chapter 2. Let me go ahead and lead us in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for the opportunity that is ours to study your word, to become reacquainted with the biblical narrative and allow it to penetrate our hearts. May your spirit penetrate our hearts and may we reflect on what Christmas really is about. And may we worship your son, the Christ of Christmas. Guide our time. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you would know the name Ira Sankey. We just came from traditions. They all knew the name Ira Sankey. He was kind of the worship leader for the evangelistic crusades of D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, and his family. Now, Ira was famous for his amazing voice. But was Iris so famous that he made it onto WAOW singing with his men's quartet like Brian Niemeyer? That's the real question. He was not that famous. Our own Iris Sankey. Brian Ira Niemeyer. I like that. Well, on Christmas in 1876, we had the first Ira. And he was on a ship and he was going up the Delaware River. And as he went up the Delaware River, it was late in the afternoon. Many of the passengers were up on the deck, and suddenly somebody recognized him. And that person cried out, Ira Sankey is here. And many people, maybe not able to recognize him visually, they knew the name, and they said, Ira, Ira, will you sing a hymn for us? And Ira smiled and said, yeah, I'll sing one. And then he closed his eyes momentarily, ushered up one of those SOS prayers that we often do. And he said, God, what would you have me sing? And God said, sing the shepherd's song. Let me just give you two of the sentences. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures, feed us. For our use, thy folds prepare. Now, the song is clearly about Jesus. And on Christmas Eve, 
on every eve, songs about Jesus are appropriate. And so as Ira began to sing, it was as though everyone on the entire deck paid attention. They were worshiping the Christ as he sang. And when he was done, a very rough looking guy came up to Ira. He said, in 1862, were you a Union picket soldier in Pittsburgh? Were you there in the fall? And Ira said, yes. And you stood at the picket, right? And you, you stood as a sentry, right? And Ira said, yes. How do you know that? Were you there? And the rough looking guy said, oh yeah, I was there. But I wasn't part of the union. I was a Confederate. And I was a sharpshooter. And with a full moon, you were as good as dead. I had you in my sights. I could have taken you out. And you began to sing that very song. I recognized your voice. You sang the shepherd's song. And it was so beautiful. I thought, you know what? I'm going to let you live until you're done. And as you sang, I realized it was the song my mother had sung to me when I was a young boy. My mother died when I was rather young. I always thought that I would have turned out a lot better if she had lived. Well, at the end of your song, I was so moved, I, I could no longer lift up my gun. That song saved your life. I've traveled far and wide. I've looked for the shepherd, but I've never found him. Can you tell me about the shepherd? And Ira Sankey, on a ship going up the Delaware, explained to this rough-looking guy about a Savior, Jesus Christ, and that you and I are sinners in need of a Savior, and that our sin will keep us from a holy God, but the shepherd, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, died for us, paid the penalty of our sin, conquered death, rose again, that if by faith we would receive him as Savior and Lord, we would be given eternal life. Don't leave today without knowing the shepherd, Jesus, as your personal savior. So this morning, we're going to talk about the great shepherd. We're going to talk about Jesus. And as Christmas is approaching, we'll spend some time reflecting on the Christmas narrative. How God, the second member of the Trinity, took on flesh and dwelt among us. How he entered into a broken and sinful creation over 2,000 years ago to save and redeem it. At the incarnation... The Son of God became the God-man, the only mediator between divinity and humanity. And as we work through our text this morning, there's a key idea we want uh, to emphasize a few times. And here it is. Christmas is all about Jesus. It's not primarily about us. And well, that probably goes without saying, in the culture that we live in, it's a, it's a neglected truth. Christmas can be about so many things that sometimes we forget that Christmas is all about Jesus. So with that in mind, we're going to read through the main section of our passage today, which is Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. So you can follow along as I read aloud. Here's what Matthew writes. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Today, we rightly are celebrating and reflecting on the genesis of Jesus. Now, our ESV Bibles read the birth of Jesus Christ, but the word birth here is not the traditional Greek word for birth, which is gena, but rather a unique word, genesis, the same word that we see as the first book of our Bibles. And the word genesis, it's a unique one, and it often signifies the telling of an origin story. Now, everyone likes a good origin story, hence why there's countless ones that are told each and every year. But Jesus' origin story is unique for many different ways. Uh, Jesus' origin story is more interesting and enlightening than any other story that's out there. But sometimes we sadly overlook, uh, overlook this account because of our familiarity with the Christmas narrative. But let's try to combat that this morning and read through this narrative with fresh eyes and fresh hearts and see what God might be trying to teach us. So Matthew chooses an uncommon word, Genesis, to underscore the uncommon way that Jesus entered into our world. Just think of some of the ways that Jesus' birth was unique. First, Jesus has always pre-existed. Jesus' origin story doesn't actually mark the origin of his existence. Unlike anything else in material creation, Jesus has existed from eternity past. Jesus was not created, nor was he the product of intimacy between his mother and his stepfather, Joseph. Jesus always was, he is, and he always will be. And his pre-existence was even prophesied 700 years earlier by the prophet Micah, the same Micah, which I think is making a, a guest appearance ne- next, next week. week. There you go. So if you're going to cite him. Make sure I get it right. Okay, sounds good. Micah 5, uh, verse 2, here's how Micah put it. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from eternity past. Jesus always existed. He, like the Father and the Holy Spirit, is the uncaused cause. He causes everything, but nothing causes him. There's never been a moment where he has not existed. So no wonder Matthew is emphasizing the unique genesis, the unique birth of Jesus, the uncaused cause entering into creation, the very creation that he upholds by the word of his power. That should cause us to pause and be in awe of who this Savior is. One of the many reasons that Christmas is all about Jesus and not primarily about us. Jesus was and is God. He always will be God. But at the incarnation, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he took on humanity. That didn't overshadow or diminish his divinity. We rightly say that he is 100% God, 100% man. We call it the hypostatic union from the Greek word hypostasis, which talks about his substance. 
He is ontologically, the essence of his being, he is fully God and fully man. Now, there are a few humans that think they are God, but they are not. But Jesus actually is God. No wonder the birth narrative of Christ focuses our attention on Christ. I want to make sure this Christmas season that I make it about Christ. It's so easy for me to make it about me, who I want to visit, who I want to visit me, the traditions I would like to have, the food that I would like to enjoy, the presents that I would like to receive. It's so easy to make it about me. There's nothing wrong with some of these traditions, but Christmas is about Christ. It's about the virgin giving birth. You may have noticed that Matthew goes way out of his way to tell us that the Genesis account is unique. It is a virgin birth. Let me just share a little bit. Verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, halfway through, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Verse 25, but Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. The entire text points to the fact that there is a unique birth, the Genesis account. Christmas is not about us. It's not. It's about Christ. And I don't want to fly through the next week making it about me. I don't want to get to next Sunday and Monday and make it about me. It is about Christ. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and unpack the rest of this familiar narrative. So Joseph and Mary's parents were likely friends, or at least close enough friends to want to arrange a marriage between their son and daughter. And at this point of time, it's likely that Joseph is probably around 13 and Mary is likely 12, probably the ages of their bat mitzvah and bar mitzvah, respectively. Now, some scholars might argue that Joseph is a little bit older. He might be 18 because 18 was the age at which a young Jewish man was to be financially stable. However, it's likely that he's younger than that because the gospels don't really give us the picture of a financially stable young married couple. In Luke chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary take Jesus to be dedicated at the temple and they're doing a sacrifice which was prescribed in the Old Testament law in Leviticus 12, uh, the the uh, sacrifice that was to be usually given would be a lamb. However, there was an exemption given for those who were very poor. They could do two turtle doves or two pigeons. Joseph and Mary chose the latter, and they would have done so because that would have been financially necessary. So we don't really see the picture of a young married couple that's financially independent. They're, They're a young couple just trying to figure out life. So regardless of their exact ages, we do see in our text in Matthew 1 that they were betrothed. This is called the Kedushin stage of marriage. In Jewish culture in the first century, there was two stages to marriages. There was the Kedushin stage and then the Hupa stage. In the Kedushin stage, they were technically viewed as married. They were husband and wife. You needed a divorce to separate at this point. However, For about a year, they lived still with their parents. They lived in their parents' homes, and there was not the joining together in sexual intimacy. It was more like a married engagement. 
the celebration of the marriage would be a year later, and that would mark the hoopa stage of the marriage. So they're not quite yet there. They're in this married betrothed stage, and yet we see that they are seeking to follow God's guidelines and pursuing sexual purity in this, in this relationship. And this is just one of the many ways that we see that Joseph and Mary are a model worth emulating. Here's a young couple. They're committed in marriage to one another, and yet they are remaining chaste until their wedding night. Now, immorality was rarer in the first century world, and if it was found out, there could be potentially severe consequences. And we see even some of those in Deuteronomy 22. Quite conversely, we now live in a society that underestimates and undervalues God's intent for every human being in this realm, which is sexual holiness and sexual purity. And for those that God calls to marriage, he calls us for chasteness prior to marriage and then faithfulness within marriage. Sexual purity, sexual holiness, following God's guidelines, that's his desire as our creator for all 8 billion people who inhabit the earth. And even more so, it should be something that we pursue for those of us who identify as followers of Jesus. And God doesn't give us these boundaries for uh, marriage and intimacy to be some sort of cosmic killjoy or to be burdensome. Quite the opposite, God gives us boundaries. He designs things for our betterment and to produce human flourishing. And we constantly see examples of how God's way is proven to be the right way in the world that we live. Uh, For instance, just this last year in 2023, there was a new research study that was uh, released regarding the state of American marriages. It's not a particularly uh, uh, joyous study, but one of the things that they found was that 70% of American couples live together before being married. And in the study, they also found that those that live together before marriage have a 48% higher likelihood of their marriage ending in divorce than those who live together after being married. So this is just one instance of where we see that God's designs are meant to help build stronger marriages. It's to, pr- to help produce human flourishing. So as we think of Mary and Joseph's example, they are trying to obey God in a world that often demands self-autonomy. May we model their, uh, maybe we follow their model, and may we honor God and his desire for us. So purity is what Joseph rightly expected of Mary, and purity is what Mary rightly re- expected of Joseph. However, prior to their wedding night, there's a surprise. Mary is found to be with child. Now, we know something that Joseph doesn't know. We know that the child is the product of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. But Joseph doesn't know this at this point. Hence why we can just imagine that there would have been so much pain taking place uh, in the story that's being described. There'd be pain for Mary. Society is going to view her as unfaithful and promiscuous. She was neither. There'd be pain for Joseph. He initially believes that his betrothed wife has been unfaithful to him. She has not been. There's going to be pain for their families. We can only wonder how they might have reacted to the news that there is a baby bump before the celebration, before the the time when everyone would get to celebrate their coming together as, as man and wife. They would be the talk of the town. There's obviously going to be pain in the story. However, Christmas is not primarily about pain. There's pain in the beginning, but it ends in joy. 
Well, Joseph is naturally crushed. Joseph is thinking of a covenantal marriage. And then he learns that Mary is pregnant. He knows that he is not the father. And so he conceives of a plan to quietly divorce her. Let me read to us from the text. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now it is very interesting that word just is the word sadiq. It is a descriptive word, but it's more than that. It was actually an unofficial title. They would call an individual who lived for God, loved God, knew God's word, lived out God's word. They might call such an individual a sadiq. It was a rare title, but one that was held in high regard. It's particularly noteworthy that some people thought that Joseph at his young age was a sadiq. But if he does not divorce her loudly, if he does not make it clear that the baby bump has nothing to do with him, no one will ever call him a sadiq again. But he loves Mary. He models what it is to be the right husband, a husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he knows what is clear in Matthew 5 and 19, but hinted at in the Old Testament, that adultery can dissolve a marriage, that God permissively allows divorce when adultery occurs. He doesn't require it. He doesn't command it but he permissively allows it. And rather than protect himself and his rights and his reputation, he's going to quietly divorce her. That means for the rest of his life, no one will ever call him a sadiq. No one will ever call him a righteous man, a just man. He will never have that title ever again. But God, but God in his mercy sends an angel in a dream to Joseph. Let me read from verses 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, divorce, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Christmas is primarily about Christ. It's about the birth of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the worship of Christ. Think even of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. Sometimes theologians call the Holy Spirit the shy member of the Trinity. It was Dr. Bruner who coined the phrase the Christocentric aspect of the Holy Spirit. Although the Holy Spirit has many roles, his primary role is to exalt the Son. Did you realize that? All three members of the Trinity are ontologically the same. They are of the same essence, the same substance. They are the uncaused cause. There has never been a moment, there will never be a moment that they have not existed. And yet the primary role of the Holy Spirit is the exaltation, the exalting of Christ. 
And we see that in the Christmas account, the role of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus. But do we know what our primary role is? Well, just like the Holy Spirit, our primary role is to exalt and worship Christ as well. Hence, Christmas is his day, not predominantly ours. Which is ironic because in actuality, every day is Jesus' day because Jesus is not just the focal point of Christmas. Jesus is the focal point of all of human history. We just think of Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11, where the Apostle Paul reminds us of Jesus being this central figure. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This exaltation of Jesus is the culmination of all of human history and the moment that the inbreaking of the new heavens and the new earth arrive. And this is all possible because Jesus is the savior of the world. And it's no wonder that God's angel instructs Joseph to call this baby Jesus. Jesus comes from a a form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which uh, literally means God saves or Yahweh saves. So this son Jesus is coming to save his people from their sins. So how does Jesus do this? How does the Christ of Christmas become the savior of the world? Well, first we have to remember that he is God. He is God. Therefore, he is without sin, he is holy, and he is able to pay the penalty of our sins. Thus, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid our sins, and through his death on the cross, he showed that he is victorious over sin, he is victorious over death, and that Anyone who is in him might have those sins conquered and forgiven. So how does Jesus say first we see that he's fully God, but we also are reminded that Jesus being fully God also became fully human. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became a human so that he might represent us before God after atoning for our sins. All of us have a sin problem. We are all under the penalty the power, and we feel the presence of sin in our lives. And we are not capable of delivering ourselves from this broken creation. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. We are all broken and in Adam and need saving. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, for as by a man, which is Adam, came death by a man, Jesus, has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all have died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, turn away from our sin and put our faith in Jesus, we become united with him. We become in Christ, meaning our sins are covered and atoned for, and we are now the righteousness of God. And this is all made possible by the Christ of Christmas coming and entering into a broken world, living a perfect life dying in our place on the cross, being raised again victoriously, showing his power over the grave and over sin so that anyone who believes in him might have salvation. Again, it's no wonder that Christmas is all about Jesus and it's not about us. He is worthy of our praise and worship. Well, through the illumination of the angel, 
I think Joseph understood all or a lot of this. And so he willfully took Mary home to be his wife, but they did not share intimacy until after the birth of Christ. As we conclude this morning, we would like to offer three observations from the text. The first observation is this. I think there is a lot to imitate in the life of Mary and in the life of Joseph. Now, some people worship Mary. Don't do that. That's idolatry. But we can celebrate how she lived and imitate how she lived. Think of the situation. She's a young girl in the first stage of marriage, but it's a stage prior to intimacy. And the angel Gabriel comes to her and says that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of the Most High. And she says, may it be to me, as you have said. Saying those words, she had to have known. She had to have known that Joseph wouldn't understand. Her parents would demand an explanation, and her explanation wasn't a very good one, from a human point of view, what would those in her village say? How would they treat her? Might she not be ostracized? Is it possible she could be stoned to death? All of these things had to flash in her mind, and yet she said, may it be to me as you have said. I've often heard the phrase, I understand the sentiment, but I think we ought to think it through. I've heard people say, The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Spiritually, that is true. But humanly, not so much. And the darker our world gets, the more dangerous it will be to be in the center of God's will. Because our world does not put up with the morality, the ethics. Does not put up with one way to salvation, only through Jesus Christ. And so we're going to find ourselves having to say, like Mary, may it be to me as you have written, may it be to me as you have instructed, may it be to me as you have commanded, knowing full well that that's not always a humanly safe thing to do, to say, to follow. And then I think of Joseph. If he takes Mary home to be his wife, no one will ever call him a Sadiq again. They will assume that he is the father, that they were joined together prior to what was proper, that they were fornicators, and in their harsh, unforgiving world, he will be ostracized for the rest of his life. And yet when the angel told him, and he awoke. He took Mary home to be his wife. Obedience is not always safe, but it's always right. And it is at the center of God's will. Worshiping the Christ of Christmas demands your, my, our obedience. And the second application really just centers on the gospel message. As we think of the gospel of Matthew, And he's the beginning, really, of our our New Testament 
uh, canon, we see that he starts with the truth that God became man. He starts with the incarnation. He starts with Emmanuel. He starts with Jesus, meaning God saves. Christian theology is built on the truth that we are in need of a savior, that we are in need of Emmanuel, that we are in need of a mediator between God and human beings because we have a sin problem. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of, of God's glory. And in our sin, we have rebelled against God. We continue in our rebellion. We are incapable of delivering ourselves of that rebellion. And that rebellion comes with a cost. For the wages of that sin is death. But we're grateful that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as we think about the Christmas narrative, we are reminded that in incredible love, God in Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary in a lowly stable cave without pomp or pageantry. And he was born in humility out of love for us, considering the needs of us greater than his own. He became a man and lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, and offers eternal life. He offers freedom for anyone who will be united in him with, through faith. And Romans 10, 9 through 10 tells us how we are to rightly respond to that message. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. As we think about the Christmas story, as we think about the Christ of Christmas, we are reminded that salvation is through nothing and no one else. The Christ of Christmas, Jesus, is the only means for us to be in right relationship with God, to have our sin problem erased. So we need to make sure this morning that we have believed in him, that we have by faith received him as our Lord and our Savior. Finally, I want to make an observation out of Luke chapter 2. I want to talk just a moment about the childhood of Jesus. We might assume that Mary and Joseph brought up Jesus in the fear and the admonition, admonition of the Lord, but we don't have to assume it. Scripture actually teaches it. Let me read first out of Luke 2, verse 39. And when they... Mary and Joseph had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. They returned into Galilee up north to their own town of Nazareth. What's happening is after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph go to the temple. They have Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. According to Luke 2, 31 and following, the first male to open up a womb is to be dedicated, consecrated as holy to the Lord. So they dedicate their son to the Lord. And then, as we've already heard, they go and pay a temple tax. It was an offering, a worship offering for the birth of their son. Now, they're so poor that they give two pigeons or two turtle doves. Now, you may say, well, no big deal. Everyone did that. Actually, everyone did not do that. We know full well that many Jews in the first century did not do that, any of that, even though it was required. In addition, as their children grew, we know the names of three of their children, Jesus, James, and Jude. James and Jude both each wrote a book of Scripture. 
and there are others as well, as their children grew, they made worship a high priority. Let me read from verse 41 of Luke 2. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. That's Pesach. They also followed Shavuot. They also followed Sukkot. That means that every Passover, every weeks, which is the celebration of the law and the harvest, and every booth, which is God providing for the Jews in the 40 years of wandering, in all of those three major temple worship services, they traveled from Nazareth down to the temple, 85 miles, 170 miles round trip. You say, well, okay, isn't that part of the ceremonial law? Not exactly. First, the rabbis weren't enforcing the ceremonial law, but even if they enforced the ceremonial law, every male who lived within 15 miles of the temple had to go for Pesach for Passover. If you lived outside of 15 miles, you had to come once in your lifetime. They lived 85 miles away, 170 miles round trip. They came every single year to corporately sing praises to God, to hear the exposition of God's word, to give their temple offerings and tithes to the Lord. They did it every year. They brought up their children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We don't know when Joseph dies, but we know he lives through age 12 because at age 12, you remember, Jesus stays behind. His parents think he's probably with some relatives. They head back. Nobody knows where Jesus is. They come back and they find Jesus talking to the priests. And it's both Mary and Joseph. So we know that Joseph is there at least till age 12. One more text. I want to read from Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. This tells us that every Sabbath, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, he was in the synagogue worshiping the Father. Now, how did he learn that? Well, it's an inference, but many things, many habits come from our parents. And it was his habit. It was just an inference. But I think his parents brought him up in church. Regardless, note that Jesus was in the synagogue every Sabbath. And if Jesus needed to be in the synagogue every Sabbath, what about me? What about you? It's Christmas time. It's a wonderful time. There's all sorts of decorations and cookies. There's all sorts of celebrations and cookies. There's all sorts of presents, and yes, there's those cookies. There's all sorts of wonderful things. But I don't want to forget why we celebrate Christmas. It's the Christ. It's not about what I want to eat or where I want to go or who I want to be with or who I hope visits me. Those are great. But Christmas is about the Christ. Let's not rush through this next week and forget about the Christ of Christmas. Let's pray. Would you pray for us? Absolutely.
Heavenly Father, this morning as we've had the time just to slow down and to read through the Christmas narrative, uh, allow us just to be touched by the story that we've heard. We're reminded first and foremost that Christmas is all about Jesus. And in a season that many of us would consider one of the busiest seasons of the year, help us to be intentional to slow down and to make sure that we are preparing our hearts to rightly worship the Christ of Christmas. Allow us to not be distracted by all of the other things that are going on and forget that this is his day, not ours. But Father, also allow us to be inspired by some of the supporting characters of the narrative. As we think of Joseph and Mary and the Holy Spirit and how all of them uh, were so abundantly faithful and how we see Jesus glorified through their decisions in the text. Allow us to emulate their good examples, to be challenged as Mary to say, whatever your will is, Lord, we will follow. Allow us to be honorable like Joseph of considering the needs of others as more important than us, our own. Allow us to think like the Holy Spirit of how can we rejoice and magnify and exalt Jesus this Christmas season. And Father, just bless the rest of our afternoons and allow us to have uh, just a, a good week as we continue to prepare for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.